I'm Mike Slater from the podcast Politics by Faith. This is a crazy time in our country. It's stressful, a lot of anxiety, and it's going to get worse. And I realized that one of the things that helps me take away the stress is realizing that there's nothing new under the sun. So on this podcast, we take the news of the day and we run it through the Bible and other periods in history to realize that we've been through this before and we can rise above again. Politics by Faith, anywhere you listen to the podcast. Politics by Faith. I'm Josh Hammer, and this is America on Trial. Hope everyone had an enjoyable three-day holiday weekend. Hope you enjoyed your President's Day holiday. It certainly was quite a tumultuous weekend for the 45th President of the United States and perhaps future President of the United States, Donald Trump. That is for sure after Friday's ruling in New York City with the Justice Arthur and Goron penned civil fraud verdict. Absolutely insane stuff. Let's not waste any more time. Let's dive right in and go around the horn. The ball is currently in the air when it comes to a lot of the current Trump legal cases. So just to briefly recap the state of things, at the end of last week on Thursday, we had Judge Juan Merchant in New York State give the formal go-ahead for Alvin Bragg's New York State prosecution of Trump to proceed. Jury selection for that case will start on March 25th, if you recall, and we discussed it in depth on last week's shows. But if you recall, this is the hush money payment case involving Michael Cohen and Stormy Daniels. It is totally frivolous. It is the most laughable of the four criminal prosecutions against Trump, nonetheless, we are awaiting that trial to formally commence in just over a month from now on March 25th. When it comes to the state of Florida, that is the other lesser discussed of the four criminal cases currently going on right now. This is the classified documents retention case involving Mar-a-Lago. You have some pretrial motions that are due in court this week. All signs do currently point towards that case going ahead and getting started formally on May 20th. That is what my legal calendar is telling me. May 20th is a start date for that classified documents case there at Mar-a-Lago. When it comes to the other classified documents scandal, we're still dealing a little bit a week and a half later with the political fallout of special counsel Robert Hur's own report when it comes to Joe Biden and his own illicit handling of classified documents going back to his time as U.S. Senator from Delaware and his time as Barack Obama's vice presidential wingman. That 300-plus page report from Robert Hur, for reasons that we, we, we have discussed on this show, foreswore the possibility of prosecuting Joe Biden for multiple reasons, namely this longstanding Department of Justice policy, which is constitutionally correct in my view, against indicting sitting active presidents of the United States. And then Robert Hur also had that language, perhaps gratuitous, but perhaps also politically interesting, possibly even politically helpful for Donald Trump. Robert Hur also included that language, that is to say, that said that Joe Biden could did not have the mens rea, what lawyers call, did not have the mentality of willfulness or intentionality when it came to his deliberate mishandling of classified documents for the very simple reason that the dude is so senile and is so out to lunch that he cannot possibly do anything with deliberate willfulness. I, really, really crazy stuff there. In any event, as a legal matter, as a purely legal matter, that case seems to be closed for now. We are going to deal with the political fallout. I think that as a purely political tactic, Republicans would be absolutely crazy to not continue to clamor for the release of the full transcript between Robert Hur and his attorneys and Joe Biden. Biden and his lawyers are frantically 
trying to make sure that that transcript does not get out there, presumably for the reason that it makes Joe Biden look really, really bad. And they don't want to they don't want America to see and the world to see that Joe Biden was the one himself who actually brought up the topic above all of the death date of his son, Bo Biden. There was this whole back and forth about who brought up the death date of Bo Biden conversation there. So that's going to be an interesting political matter to track as well. But as a purely prosecutorial matter, the door seems to have shut on the possibility of prosecuting Joe Biden in that case. When Going back to Donald Trump there, just for a second, when it comes to some of his other cases, we are still waiting to hear from the U.S. Supreme Court when it comes to multiple of the Trump cases right now. The U.S. Supreme Court has the ball in their court when it comes to both the Colorado ballot access question, both the 14th Amendment Section 3 insurrection clause case, the case of Trump versus Anderson, which had an oral argument at the Supreme Court a week and a half ago. We're still waiting for the justices to deliver their opinion on that. All signs point towards a 9-0 unanimous or an 8-1 to opinion there. Sotomayor would be the lone dissenter. Hopefully we'll get that sooner rather than later. I predict that we will get that sooner rather than later, actually. This is not the kind of thing that the Supreme Court is going to want to let the states have a lot of leeway with. They're going to want to run a tight ship here before the primary process gets on even further, especially with the South Carolina primary looming this weekend, Super Tuesday coming up soon thereafter. I'm expecting a ruling from the Supreme Court justices in that case, certainly sooner rather than later. And then we are also waiting to hear from the Supreme Court when it comes to Donald Trump's request for a stay of the three-judge D.C. Circuit panel's finding of no immunity in the other, the second of the Jack Smith special counsel federal prosecutions there in the D.C. Circuit, this being the electioneering case involving the 2020 election in January 6th, and this notion, so say Jack Smith and his merry band of far-left progressive attorneys, that Donald Trump and his team so-called attempted to overthrow the election and end democracy as we know it, the, the, the worst attack on the Capitol since the War of 1812, the burning of Washington, blah, blah, blah. You, you guys know how that argument goes. In any event, we're waiting to hear from the Supreme Court there to find out what they are going to do with Donald Trump's emergency request for a stay from this finding of no immunity, are they going to go ahead and expedite a hearing on the substantive constitutional question as to whether Article 2 of the Constitution would preclude and necessarily do away with Jack Smith's prosecution because these are actions that Donald Trump took while he had the, quote, executive power with which Article 2 of the Constitution solely vests the president? Or are they not going to issue a stay? Or are they going to allow him to then go down to the D.C. Circuit and try to hear this thing before the full 11 judge on bonk court, which would have the effect of elongating the process, trying to run out the clock. That would definitely be the preferred legal strategy of Donald Trump and his lawyers there. So we're waiting to hear from the Supreme Court when it comes to that as well. And then circling back to Georgia, we're going to have a private hearing in Judge Scott McAfee's chambers tomorrow on some more misconduct allegations there. We're still waiting to hear some more public word about what is going to happen after this absolutely explosive two-day hearing there in Judge Scott McAfee's courtroom last Thursday and Friday, where you had Fonnie Willis in particular just absolutely beclown herself, come across as a frankly just deranged and unhinged person. We all heard her get up there and say, I'm not the one on trial. They're on trial for stealing an election. This is the woman who couldn't even tell us what country Belize and the Bahamas were in 
the, the woman whose, whose father was allegedly shacking up decades ago with the far-left radical Black Panther, Angela Davis. I mean, she came across as just a deeply, profoundly unserious person there. I do not see how they are going to allow Fani and her lover boy, the quote-unquote special prosecutor, Nathan Wade, who has already pocketed $650,000 in cool, hard Georgia taxpayer dollar cash. I just don't see how they're going to allow them to continue to lead this prosecution there in, in the peach state. I predict that case is ultimately going to get moved at this point out of Fulton County, Georgia, which, if true, would just be a tremendous coup for the president and his co-defendants, given the fact that Fulton County, which is where Atlanta is by far the bluest county in all of Georgia, and if you start to talk about moving it out of Fulton County, then you are already going to talk about raising the possibility, indeed the probability, of getting a hung jury there in Georgia in what was, in the eyes of many of us, going to be the most dangerous of all the cases last year. Really looks like Donald Trump and his team are getting quite, quite lucky there in Georgia. Finally, when it comes to what we mentioned at the top of, of our episode today, we are still dealing with the fallout of this utterly bonkers, bat crap crazy, Stalinist, truly Stalinist verdict from Friday when it comes to the courtroom of Justice Arthur and Goron this finding of fraud for Trump and the Trump organization. Now, it's true that the top-line number is $364 million in damages for Trump, the Trump organization, Eric Trump, Donald Trump Jr., and so forth there. But, you know, it's worth emphasizing that if you include interest, if you include interest, and it's a 9% interest according to the calculation, then as of Friday in this case, the actual number that Trump and his co-defendants had to pay, according to Forbes.com's article this, this morning, $463.9 million. So uh, about $100 million more than what even the top-line number was reporting, and that's because they started backtracking this interest accumulation, and, Gor- and Goron did in his calculation as far back as March 2019, March 2022, and June 2023, based on some of the underlying calculations, which adds $98.6 million just in interest to the top-level amount that Trump and his co-defendants, i.e. his sons, there owe. And the actual number is, this is another wild statistic, but every day that this goes on without being paid, based on that interest calculation, $87,500 is Trump's bill goes up by the day until that thing is paid there. What is the No Spin News all about? You know that this is a fact-based analysis news program. You know that. We avoid speculation. We don't do conspiracies here. We don't do party politics here. We're not nonpartisan. That's wrong. Not that. Okay, we are advocates for a stronger America and a more just society. We don't believe in communism. We don't believe in socialism. We don't believe in nihilism. We don't believe in the progressive woke culture. We think it is un-American. We don't support that. So you should know what we are. And it would then crystallize what we do. Listen to the No Spin News. Subscribe to Bill O'Reilly's podcast feed wherever podcasts are available. 
Now, we're going to have to see what Donald Trump is going to do in order to pay this fine. He's not going to have to pay necessarily the whole thing, but he's going to have to pay some of it, right? And the man has a lot of money on paper. How much Trump is worth is, is famously a question of dispute. Forbes magazine estimated his net worth to be $2.6 billion last, last September there. But according to that Forbes estimate, it was only $426 million in cool, hard cash and immediately liquid assets. So it's gonna have, you're going to have to have some interesting accounting going on at the Trump organization in order to start paying some of these fines. We'll be tracking that certainly in, in the weeks ahead. They're really just absolutely shameful and appalling stuff, frankly, just deeply un-American. Finally, the last thing I want to touch on here in our Around the Horn Segment, to recall that one week ago today, it was last Tuesday, that the House, by a bare 214 to 213 tally, was able to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas, the ill-fated and, we might argue, dim-witted Department of Homeland Security secretary. After that first vote embarrassingly failed, you had some Republican defectors. You had Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin, who's going to retire. You had Ken Buck of Colorado, who's going to retire, and then Tom McClintock of California— all voted against impeachment, but they managed to squeak it by on a, on, on a bare one-vote majority there. Rightfully so, in my view, Alexander Hamilton, as we've discussed on this program, in, in the Federal's number 65, describes the impeachment of an Article II official, the president or some other cabinet official, some other quote-unquote officer of the United States. He describes it as fundamentally being a breach of the public trust, and I just don't know how else to describe Alejandro Mayorkas' handling of the crisis, the crisis, the unprecedented crisis and invasion at the southern border. I do not know how else to describe it other than as a breach of the public trust. I am defensive of the impeachment of him on constitutional grounds for sure. That raises the question, though, of what's going to happen in the Senate. Now, we know that he's not going to be convicted in the Senate. There's no chance. There's just no chance they're going to get a two-thirds majority to, to convict him, of course, which is what the Constitution requires. But are we going to get a trial? Are we even going to get a trial? I mean, that is, that is what is supposed to happen here. Mayorkas is the first cabinet official that the House has impeached since 1876, since the Reconstruction era. Crazy stuff, but that is the standard. I mean, when you when you impeach show in the House, you have to have a trial in the Senate. So what's going to happen here? Well, you have some stalwart conservatives, some folks like Ted Cruz, some folks like Mike Lee, who are planning to draft a letter or send it to Mitch McConnell saying that Mitch McConnell has to get Chuck Schumer and the rest of Senate leadership to, quote, fully engage our constitutional duty and hold a trial. Someone's going to have to preside over that trial. It's not going to be the Chief Justice of the United States, presumably. John Roberts, the Chief Justice of the United States, is who is tasked with presiding over the impeachment trial of a president of the United States. That's what John Roberts did back during the first of the two Trump impeachments, the Zelensky phone call impeachment, that ridiculous one when it comes to quid pro quo foreign aid. So he's not going to have to preside over, that is, John Roberts won't have to preside over this one, this Mayorkas impeachment in the Senate, but they're going to have to have someone else do it. So they'll have to figure that one out there. But this, this is a question of constitutional interpretation. Chuck Schumer can't just wave this away, the Senate parliamentarian. They, they can't just wave this away. Now, we all know how this is going to end. And yes, you have some even Republican senators like Kevin Kramer of North Dakota who are lambasting these impeachment articles. He's called it, quote, dead on arrival and, quote, the dumbest exercise in use of our time. 
Kevin Kramer, you are entitled to your opinion, sir, but you don't get to control the U.S. Constitution. And the Constitution demands that we hold an impeachment trial for someone who is impeached in the House. That is your senatorial duty. And I, for one, hope that this trial takes place, no matter who presides over it. And I very much look forward to seeing folks like the aforementioned Ted Cruz put on their prosecutorial glasses and start to ask some very, very tough questions of, of Alejandro Mayorkas. At a bare minimum, this is the kind of thing that should be put squarely before the voters from a political perspective in an election year like 2024. And I think holding this trial would be one very straightforward, indeed camera-friendly and enticing and intriguing way to do this. So with all that said, let's go to today's deep dive. In today's deep dive, I want to go back to one of the cases that you've probably forgotten about at this point. I mean, how many Trump, Trump cases can one person be, be, be expected to, to keep track of? Well, thankfully, that's what we're doing on the show for you, of course. And as a friendly reminder, if you're not already doing so, please go ahead and subscribe to our show. Leave us that five-star review and so forth. In any event, when we launched this show a few weeks ago, one of the big cases at the time was the E. Jean Carroll defamation case. Again, you've probably forgotten about that because so much else has happened. This case with E. Jean Carroll, the, the nutjob who named her own pet after her genitalia, who had to be removed promptly from CNN and various other cable news outlets right after her allegations first came up in 2019 because she started droning on and on on national television about how she harbored these deep fantasies of, of being raped. I mean, j just an absolute, absolute cartoon character of a human being talking about these allegations in a Bergdorf Goodman dressing room from decades ago. Total clown show stuff. She has now had multiple shots at the apple. She has now had multiple findings that Donald Trump is guilty or liable for sexual assault, for defamation, for this or for that. So she, she's been successful twice now. And just to briefly recap, this most recent ruling from the end of January was bonkers, truly bonkers stuff, insofar as it was $18 million in compensatory damages for E. Jean Carroll, which, by the way, is a lot, is a, is a lot unto itself for this clearly mentally unstable, clearly mentally unwell woman who is literally naming her pet vagina, and is talking about fantasies of being raped on air. I mean, insane to have $18 million just right there in compensatory damages. But then to add insult to injury, they slapped $65 million in punitive damages on top of that. At the time, I argued and continue to argue that this is likely unconstitutional under 14th Amendment due process clause grounds. The U.S. Supreme Court, in a long and fairly uninterrupted line of cases over the past 30 years, has repeatedly read a lot of skepticism into the idea of punitive damages. The Supreme Court is not a big fan of punitive damages, and it makes sense why. Punitive damages are there, as the name would apply, simply to punish. They are not there to try to compensate necessarily. They are not there to try to restitute, to try to make people whole. It, it just is somewhat of an affront to just justice, frankly, by its via its very nature. I'm not arguing that they are here, there, and everywhere inappropriate, Perhaps there was a role for it, but at a bare minimum where you have a ratio of punitive to non-punitive damages like this of over three to one, I do not like the odds of this on appeal. I, I think Trump's ultimately going to be vindicated on appeal. All of that is context for something that I saw happened overnight and just my eyes just bulged out of my, out of my freaking face when I saw this, which is that you had one of E. Jean Carroll's attorneys, Sean Crowley who was on MSNBC 
Monday night was on Jen Psaki's show, which I can't say I've ever watched. Of course, Jen Psaki has a show on MSNBC, though. Inside with Jen Psaki is the name of this show. And here is the catch. The catch is that Donald Trump was recently at at a rally in Michigan this past Saturday, doubled down. He said he didn't do anything wrong to E. Jean Carroll. He said he didn't know her. And he said that these lawsuits against him were unfair. God forbid the man who was under this ridiculous, unprecedented, uncharted waters, sprawling lawfare apparatus, who was being prosecuted, who was being sued, who was being bankrupted, who was being denied ballot access. God forbid you call this unfair. No, if, you're, if your last name in this country is Trump, you're not allowed to call it unfair. Apparently not. And Sean Crowley, the attorney for E. Jean Carroll, is so, so adamant that Donald Trump cannot say that this is, quote, unfair, that he's threatening to sue again. Apparently, Sean Crowley said to Jen Psaki that he might take a third shot at the apple, that he is thinking of having E. Jean Carroll sue Donald Trump for a third time, for a third time, allegedly, I guess, on further defamation grounds, because he has the chutzpah, he has the temerity to say that this is unfair. Here's the exact quote from Sean Crowley to Jen Psaki on MSNBC Monday evening. Quote, what he said, he's talking about Trump. Crowley says, quote, what Trump said was absolutely a lie. Two unanimous federal juries have found that not only did Trump know who E. Jean was, he sexually assaulted her and lied about it repeatedly. Everything he said about her over the last five years has been a lie and has been defamatory. So we're watching, we're listening. We had really hoped that as the jury found that $83 million would maybe be enough to convince him to keep E. Jean Carroll's name out of his mouth. Apparently, he showed us this weekend he really cannot control himself, and we will see what happens as this continues to play out. God forbid you don't necessarily take what a jury pool or a court, for that matter, what they say as the equivalent of Moses descending from Sinai with the tablets as eternal transcendental truth. Oh, man, it's not like courts have never gotten anything wrong in this country, have they? Hmm, I don't know. You want to ask Chief Justice Roger Taney of the U.S. Supreme Court? The Dred Scott case of 1857? Plessy versus Ferguson? I could go on and on here. The amount of times that, that courts have gotten things wrong in human history. The idea that courts and juries are deeply infallible, deeply infallible institutions. Are you, are you out of your mind? But it's even worse than that. In the case here of allegations of sexual assault, the idea that Donald Trump cannot defend himself, that he, that he can't even condemn it, as unfair? What in the world? I graduated Duke in 2011, and my next-door neighbor, my junior year of college, was a guy by the name of Ned Crotty. Ned Crotty, that year, in 2010, was a fifth-year senior who won the Tawaraton Trophy, which is College of Lacrosse's equivalent of the Heisman Trophy, and he led Duke to its then-first-ever national championship in men's lacrosse. Why was he a fifth-year senior? Well, he was a fifth-year senior because his first year of eligibility back in 2006 was wiped out from the infamous Duke lacrosse scandal. Was Ned Crotty and the other people at that party, were they not allowed to say that it was unfair that they were charged with being a bunch of gang rapists? When did we decide as a society 
Sean Crowley, you dim-witted idiot attorney for E. Jean Carroll, when did we decide that it is somehow unfair for a man to defend himself against allegations of sexual assault, rape, sexual harassment, all the other disgusting stuff, disgusting stuff. Again, the silver lining there is that I do not think this is going to stand on appeal. This is one of the Trump cases where I am particularly bullish. This is pretty solid 14th Amendment due process law when it comes to these damages there. He's probably going to have to pay something, but it's going to get severely reduced. But just disgusting stuff there coming in overnight from Sean Crowley on MSNBC. Wanted to flag it for you. And once again, we'll be right back here tomorrow morning with another episode of America on Trial. Hopefully some better news for you tomorrow morning.